to this very special edition of Percolated Media Presents. Yes, this show is coming back, at least for a few weeks. I have two, maybe three guests lined up. Uh, the first one is somebody I am so excited to present to people because I read his book, and we're going to be discussing it throughout the course of this interview. But let me just say, if anyone has even a casual interest in Siskel and Ebert, I would recommend anybody check this out. It's called Opposable Thumbs. Also... After the interview, I'm bringing back my old buddy, Matthew Goudreau. Yes, he's going to be on Programming Presents. I know I like to do these by myself, but he wanted to come on, and I thought it was very appropriate to review a movie that him and I have been talking about back and forth, and we just kind of decided, you know what? This would be the perfect thing to do in honor of Siskel and Ebert. But before I get to Goudreau, I want to go ahead and put Matt Singer on the line. Here's Matt. Sounds good. Matt, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? I am spectacular. I got your book, and I was so curious to talk to you about it because there's so many things in it that really resonated with me, and I find it so amazing that you wrote about two people that were a huge influence on me. But before I get to that, I need to ask, I was going over your resume. You wrote a Spider-Man book? I did, yes. How did that come about? That's amazing, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah, no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, that came about because um, I wanted to get into book writing, and uh, I had done a um, a couple of essays for a book that was connected to this TV miniseries that I had been a, a like a talking head in called James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction. Mm-hmm. I think it was on AMC originally, and they did like a tie-in book with the show. And a lot of the book was transcripts of interviews that James Cameron did with different filmmakers. If you saw the show, you yeah. saw the interviews. Mm-hmm. And so the book was mostly that, but then it was filled out with different essays from different people, like some critics, historians, like there was, I think, one or two that were from like scientists. Mostly people who were talking heads in that show. And they asked me to do one, and I said, sure. And then I did it. And then actually at the last minute, I think someone pulled out of theirs, and they needed a last-minute additional one. So I actually have two essays in that book. And, you know, I did. I guess I did well enough that I kind of got on the radar of that publisher, which was Inside Editions. And I told the editor of that book, I said, I would love to write a full book. If you ever have anything, you know, let me know. And um, a couple of months later, he said, you know, I'm, I don't need anything right now, but someone else at the company is doing a book on Spider-Man history. And I was wondering if that's something you know anything about. And, I mean, if there's anything I'm... Uh, more qualified to write than a Siskel and Ebert book, it's a Spider-Man book, because that, uh, <laughs> even, even before Siskel and Ebert, that was my, my first love. And so, that was, that was how it happened. I, uh, had to kinda, I had a, an interview with 
with the editor of the that Spider-Man book at the publisher, and I might have had to write something. I don't really remember, but that was basically how it started, and then I got the job, and um, yeah, I'm really proud of that book. I loved how it uh, turned out. It's it's enormous. It's a very it's like a large coffee table kind of book. So, um, you know, you need a place to put it or a big bookshelf <laughs> to store it. But if you are into that kind of thing, I dare say it's about as good uh, a version of that kind of book about Spider-Man as uh, as exists out there. I do have the Rensler Star Wars books and the Aliens book that he had come out. And so that would look well on my bookshelf. I might look into picking that up. I was sad I didn't know about that before I picked this one up. But that's that's pretty amazing. Okay, now Matt, I'm not sure if you're aware of what we do over at the site. Basically, what we do is we do retrospectives, meaning that we review each franchise one movie at a time, leading up to the final movie of the franchise, and we just keep it going. And um, when I was thinking about ways to format this particular podcast, the thing I went back to was Siskel and Ebert all the time, because as a child... I would sit in front of the TV. Yes, I would watch reviews that they did on Return of the Jedi, Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, all of them. And so they've been a part of my life for a long time. And I'm assuming that was your story as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they were after Spider-Man, the another thing that I fell in love with as a weird, uh, awkward kid. And... Um, I, I mean, I, I don't really remember connecting them to specific franchises. I just, but I just remember being obsessed with the show by the, <laughs> excuse me, by the age of like twelve or thirteen was when I really got into it. Don't really remember how I found it or what initially got my attention, but by the time I was in middle school, I was I was really obsessed with Siskel and Ebert. Yeah, and I would watch it every week, and I would. Uh, which involved often staying up late because it was a syndicated show, was not on at a convenient time, at least where I was growing up in uh, suburban New Jersey. The time slot that I remember is late night on Sundays, and it kept getting later and later. It started at like 11 p.m., then 11.30 p.m., then midnight, and yeah, you had to, and and, and this is... I mean, I get VHS uh, tapes and VCRs certainly existed, but I didn't have access to one that I could just use to, like, regularly tape the show. So I would have to stay up. Then when it got later and later, I would have to lie to my parents and claim I was going to bed and then pretend to go to sleep but stay awake. And so that I could, when midnight rolled around, I could turn the TV back on and watch the show. And that is that's how I remember watching this show, especially in uh, the beginning was this like weird obsession that I had that was kind of dark Mm. secret that uh, I didn't want my parents to find out what I was doing and didn't really talk to uh, the kids at school about it. It was not like the uh, the topic of conversation at the playground (laughs) on Monday mornings or Mondays at lunchtime, I suppose. You know, we weren't chopping it up saying, uh, what, what, did you guys catch what Siskel and Ebert said about, you know, the lost world last night? How dare they say that about that movie? Um, it was just this weird thing that I was really, really fixated on and kind of led to a whole 
uh, career in in uh, writing about talking about movies. Yeah, and I should clear up. I don't mean like the them going over franchises. I mean just the format of going back and forth talking about a movie and sometimes arguing, sometimes not. That's pretty much what gotcha. I meant. And that relationship you explained with Cisco Niebert, that was my relationship with David Letterman growing up. I did the same thing. I, I snuck him in uh, under my covers at night. I've always been a night owl, which is why I work night shifts to this day. And it was always just a part. It was just a part of my life. But Cisco Niebuhr was the same, you know. And, and I remember what really gravitated me towards them, and what's really interesting about them is, you know, they didn't look like anybody else on TV. You know, they they weren't glamorous. You know, they were regular looking guys, very smart guys. Uh, but they always they could always hold a conversation. And the mo- one of the most interesting parts of your book, which by the way I haven't mentioned the name of it yet, it's called Opposable Thumbs. It's out there right now. How Cisco Niebuhr changed movies forever. What I found interesting, Matt, that I had no idea about is <laughs> Gene Siskel wrote a scathing review of Ebert's own movie. <laughs> and you kind of end that chapter with that cliffhanger. And what a remarkable way to end that chapter. It was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that is true. I mean, it did happen. Yeah. That um, this is um, what we're talking about is the period. But, but after they had started writing as film critics for competing newspapers in Chicago, but it's before they had started working together on the show. So at this period, they're basically just these two competitors who hate each other, who can't stand each mm-hmm. other, who are desperate to beat each other every week in print at their respective newspapers. Siskel was at the Tribune, and Ebert was at the Sun-Times, and they both kind of looked at each other as like, their main competition in Chicago. They were both young. They were both up and coming. You know, they were relatively new to their jobs and they were gaining a fair amount of popularity right off the bat. They both did very well. But they both had each other kind of, you know, looking looking at them from across screening rooms or across movie theaters uh, or what have you. And yeah, around this same time, Roger did go out to Hollywood and he wrote the Russ Meyer movie, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. He was a fan of Russ's. He had read, I think, an article in the Wall Street Journal about Russ Meyer, like a profile. And he wrote, like, a letter to the editor of the Wall Street Journal, like, praising the article, praising Russ Meyer, saying that he was a, you know, a talented filmmaker, even though what he made was kind of, you know, exploitation fair. And Russ Meyer read the letter and appreciated it. And then he wrote Roger a letter, and and it kind of (laughs) struck up a friendship. And then, you know, Russ was largely an independent filmmaker, and he got this chance because the movie studios in that period were in such rough shape. In the late 1960s, the Hollywood studios were, you know, you know, uh, basically on the verge of going out of business in some cases because mm-hmm. they were just completely out of touch. There was this, you know, the baby boomers and young audiences were out there, but Hollywood had no idea how to cater to them. And so they were just desperate for any new idea. And they saw Russ Meyer out there making these tiny budget, you know, sexploitation comedies that were making a ton of money. And, and so someone at Fox said, hey, we'll, we'll give you some money. You make a, one, your next movie here. We have the rights to make a Valley of the Dolls movie, a sequel. The first Valley of the Dolls, based on the book, was one of the, the few hits the studio had in that period. And they said, you know, please come out and and make the movie here. And Russ said, okay. And then he said to Roger, you should help me write it. And so he 
you know, Roger went out to Hollywood, they worked together, they made the screenplay, they made the movie, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, it comes out, and yeah, I mean, some critics enjoyed that movie, <laughs> and today it is fondly remembered by, by some as like this wonderful, weird cult oddity in Hollywood history. I certainly think it's a very... Uh, entertaining movie. I have. I, I I own multiple copies. Actually, I have it on Blu-ray. Uh, I have it on DVD and Blu-ray. I have the Criterion edition. Um, but not everyone was a fan. And one of the reviews that the movie got came from the film critic of the Chicago Tribune, a gentleman by the name of Gene Siskel, who gave it zero stars. And he never mentioned Ebert by name in his review, but he. In his review, uh, you know, he claims that he is also, like Ebert was, a fan of Russ Meyer's previous movies and, you know, says he was a talented filmmaker and typically his movies were very good, but in this case, uh, he, he, he had a flop and he said the only thing I could think of, I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. but basically like because his other movies were good and Russ wrote the others, the only explanation he could come up with is that he had saddled himself with a neophyte screenwriter who had done a terrible job, and of course, without naming him, the guy that he was referring to was Ebert, who he, you know, was his his uh, rival at the paper uh, across town. And so, you know, this is like the, the foundation yeah. of their relationship. This is what's mm-hmm. going on before they start doing that show. So when you think about them not getting along in the early days, especially, I mean, that's a... I, uh, would you get along with someone who wrote that review of your movie, Zero Stars, that blamed you for all of its problems? Uh, I'm not sure that you would. No, no. That's an amazing story. And I, I just thought it was an amazing basis for how their relationship would be their entire lives. You know, let's go back. So you write the Spider-Man book. It comes out. And, you know, about 10 years ago, they came out with... Uh, a documentary called Life Itself, which is just a brilliant documentary. It's so sad, but it's brilliant at the same time about Roger Roger Ebert. Now, you come up with the idea of writing this book. Did you? I mean, did you think you had more to say than that actual documentary? Because it's a brilliant documentary. I mean, I thought so. Yeah. yeah. Well, you I did. Mean, you did. I no, mean, no, no, no. I was just saying how you're going to approach this. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I it, it certainly wasn't a thing that I thought about at that time. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is now quite a few years later. Yeah. And honestly, what I looked at less was, I mean, obviously, I saw the documentary when it came out. I, and I do think that's a fabulous documentary. Um, but it's, you know, it's the Roger Ebert documentary. Yeah. Obviously, there's Gene Siskel stuff in it, but it's not the Siskel and Ebert documentary. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I started to think about possibly writing this book, I actually went back and read the Life Itself book. I was kind of more thinking about that. And, uh, you know, that that's a great memoir. But it's, again, it's the Roger Ebert mm-hmm. memoir. It's not the Siskel and Ebert story. Um, and, there's, I, and when I looked at it, when I was debating this, I realized there's only like three chapters in the entire book out of however many chapters, dozens of chapters, that's about Siskel and Ebert. And and otherwise, it's not really addressed. I mean, it is a book about his childhood, his teenage years, his college years, traveling abroad, working at the Sun-Times. It's about his personal life, his marriage, alcoholism, and like on and on and on. It's about all these different facets of his life. He lived this incredible life, um, and of which... Siskel and Ebert was part of it, but at least in that book, it was not the whole story. And so that was where I felt like, okay, uh, 
you know, maybe there is room for a book that's specifically about Siskel and Ebert together. I mean, certainly there is, you know, one of the early chapters of my book is a, a biography of Ebert, you know, sort of the, the basic, mm-hmm. um, his early years, the years leading up to um, the show and, you know, like the stuff about Russ Meyer and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls that we were just talking about, like that's in there. And there's some stories that um, uh, in in my book about also like, because it is a movie about the show and about movies, it also talks more about, like, the movies he loved as a child and the movies that inspired him to be a film critic or that he first remembered thinking critically about mm-hmm. and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly would think that um, if you like those that book and that documentary, I would I would think, actually, you will probably still enjoy my book because I like that book and that documentary life itself. And that was, you know, I, I, I felt like there was more to say. And that was where the idea for, for my book kind of emerged from. It's yeah, it's, I, I'm a notoriously slow reader. It took me about two, two days, two sittings to get through it. (laughs) That's how much I was into it. And I think it's just because of, like I said, how I grew up on them. Um, so how, I see at the end of the book, you do thank a lot of the people involved in their show. You thank Chaz. You thank Siskel's widow. How hard or easy was it to get people involved with what you were doing? I mean, it wasn't easy. It was a lot of work. But, um, you know, people generally were pretty receptive uh, to talking to me. I think what helped was I did know uh, Chaz a little bit. And I did know some people who had worked on later iterations of Siskel and Ebert because I had worked on one of the uh, the last version of the show mm-hmm. um, as a, as a contributor, a contributing critic, a contributor. I don't remember exactly what they called us, but um, the very f- final version of what had been Siskel and Ebert, or at last the last the, at least the last version that Roger Ebert was involved in, this show that was called Ebert Presents at the Movies. And this was back at PBS, the same the same Chicago PBS station where the original version of the show is created. And uh, he had, unfortunately, at this point, he had lost the ability to speak, but he was still involved with the show as kind of like the uh, producer mm-hmm. and kind of like one of like the you know he was sort of the the guy who was kind of behind it all. Essentially, he and Chaz were the people kind of producing it, running it, the vision behind it, and it had new hosts. This was the version of the show, if people remember, that was hosted by Christy Lemire and Ignati Vishnevetsky. And they had, not most weeks, they would have some critic um, who was not one of those two hosts who would contribute some sort of, like, video essay or segment or mm-hmm. news report or they would file some sort of video. And I did a couple of those. And in the process of doing that, I had met... Chaz and and met Roger Ebert, in fact, and worked with him and Chaz a little bit and worked with other people who were involved on the show. And so I had sort of, a, you know, my foot in the door in that sense. And, um, you know, I had a, a good experience doing those segments. And I think also made it clear anytime I interacted with anyone in that group that I was a huge fan of the show, that I was a huge fan of them, that I really appreciated being there that I would not be doing anything like this in any context in my life if not for the show. And so they, uh, you know, they, they, I think, understood immediately, 
you know, this was not like me trying to write some kind of like uh, tell-all mm-hmm. book. Not that there, I think, was, uh, uh, you know, some sort of d- dark skeletons <laughs> in the closet of Siskel and Ebert to tell anyway, yeah. but that they understood that this was coming from a place of genuine love and appreciation of of the show and wanting to make it a tribute to the show and not just have it be about, you know, Gene and Roger fighting and their, you know, tempestuous relationship, although that is absolutely part of their history mm-hmm. and absolutely part of my book. I also wanted it to be about movies and about film criticism and about why the show mattered to me and to so many people. And so I think that probably helped to getting people to say, okay, I will, I will talk to you. Um, I'll, I will, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I, you know, what I know or what I saw or what I remember. Did you have face to face interviews or were they all through emails? Did you have phone conversations or was it a little bit of everything? I didn't really have, I guess maybe I had one or two email interviews, but mostly it was phone, a lot of zoom and Skype, um, you know, cause people are scattered all over mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of people are in Chicago. I'm based in New York. So, you know, I did go to Chicago, I did do research there, and I did uh, interview people in person there and other places, but yeah, it was a lot of, you know, just like we're talking over Skype right now, I talk to people on Zoom, I talk to people on the phone, however anyone wanted to talk to me, if they were willing to talk to me, that's how I would talk to them. (laughs) A couple big highlights from the book that I wanted to mention, number one, I remember very vividly, I think I was 13, 14 years old, when the whole crying game fiasco happened. And I remember the screen popping up and it's saying, if you don't want to know the ending to this movie, please turn your volume down or something like that. And you kind of get into that in the book. And would you agree with the fact that that was probably the highest tension their relationship really got, wasn't it? It was around that time. Um, I don't know. I mean, on screen, maybe. I mean, that certainly is one of their kind of biggest on-screen arguments, and I guess it did, you know, the argument got intense enough that, yeah, it it did kind of become this weird news story that was reported in, like, TV Guide Mm -hmm. and other places, that they had this big argument on air, and in this case, this was a show that they weren't doing in their regular, you know, on the the balcony set in Chicago. This was something they recorded in front of a big audience, I think, at at, 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 uh, Disney MGM Studios. Mm -hmm where they typically in that period did the, you know, this was part of their, if we picked the winner's yeah. Oscar special that where this happened. And so, you know, it was sort of a unique thing where it wasn't even just them yelling at each other in an empty soundstage. They were yelling at each other uh, in front of, how you know, a couple hundred people at, at uh, tourists at Disney MGM Studios, which is uh, another sort of amusing kind of twist to the whole thing. Uh, whether that was the, 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 the most tense or the most, the biggest fight they ever had, I, I don't know that I would necessarily say that because they had, you know, like by that point in their relationship, I think they got along generally, maybe not in that exact moment, but they mm-hmm. generally got along better at that time. You know, they really had those early years, uh, you know, subsequent immediately subsequent to that uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls review and the early years of being on um, on the show together, they really had a really uh, sort of 
grouchy and com- genuinely kind of tense relationship. And then that, 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 they loosened up and they softened a, a lot all through the 1980s, you know, mm-hmm. as they got bigger and bigger and more successful, they started making more money, and a large part of that was due to their relationship. I do think they kind of warmed to each other, respected one another more and more as time went on. They never became besties, but they did like each other more and respect each other more. And and then that's the period we're talking about with this this crying game fight. So I don't know that I would say it was the worst it ever got or anything like that, but it is certainly a pretty memorable, if you watch the clip, you can find it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's pretty, they're pretty yeah. ticked off at yeah. each other. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> Definitely. Um, the, the stories you paint of these guys is pretty remarkable. On one end, you have two really, I, I would say, petty individuals like they, they they have to have certain seats in the plane and if they don't get it like <laughs> you go into a lot of that with these two where they kind of always try to one-up one another but at the same time matt you even it out very well because at one point siskel you pay you uh tell a story of siskel really helping out an assistant on their show the, the balance that you have in this book is really remarkable and i just really wanted to compliment you on that Oh, thanks. I mean, that certainly was, like I said, that was, uh, that was part of the goal for me because, you know, like I was saying earlier, um, this was the show that really inspired me to do, um, all of this stuff. And, you know, and yes, it's, it's really entertaining to hear about. I I don't think petty is a, is an uh, inaccurate word. I think at times they could be quite petty. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, they re- they really remind me. Uh, I have two little kids, uh, two little girls who are very close in age, and you know they, you know the stories you're alluding to, and you can read about in the book of them fighting over which seat on the airplane they get to sit in, and who gets to you know what a, a, a couch a cushion to sit yes. on. <laughs> Uh, in the balcony, you know, one needs a cushion because they're a little shorter and then, so they need to be taller on camera, so they have to use a cushion, but the other one is angry that the other person gets a cushion and they don't. Who gets to sit even next though they're to Dave? Taller. Who gets to sit next right, to Dave? Right, or who yeah. gets, right, who gets <laughs> yeah. to sit next to David Letterman or Johnny yeah. Carson, or gets the most lines in a sketch mm-hmm. on Saturday Night Live, yes. All of those things. That reminds me of the way my, my children are. My, if, if one gets Eight M and M's and the other gets seven. I'll hear about it. If one has, if the eight M and M's have three blues and the seven M and M's have two blues, I'm gonna hear about that. You know what I mean? Like that's that's how it was with them. So yeah, so absolutely they could be like that. Um, and and it's fun to read those stories. They're great stories. At the same time, this was a show about film criticism. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, it was uh, the gateway to how they discovered. Uh, films and film criticism. I, I count myself on, um, amongst those people. And so I really did want it to be also about films and film criticism and the history of film criticism and how they fit into that history and how they changed film criticism and the nuts and bolts of how they did reviews and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, I, I, I absolutely wanted the book to kind of have that balance in it. Mm-hmm. About 10, 11 years ago, um, I did an independent film, and my goal was to get it out so that Roger could review it. Like, I wanted a movie to be reviewed by Roger Ebert. 
so bad. And unfortunately, we were able we finished it in 2017, which is when when it was released. So a little late, but that was a huge goal of mine. And you're right, they changed film criticism to you know before they came around, you had what Pauline Keel. I think was around at that time, but that was pretty much it as far as noteworthy criticism, right? Well, there were certainly there were many, many um, film critics yeah. before them during their period and and afterwards. But you know, they absolutely brought certain, uh, I would say, innovations or just, uh, I mean, they changed and brought some new ideas to to the whole thing. I mean. Uh, Pauline Kael, Andrew Saris, uh, Otis Ferguson. I mean, there's many people, uh, wonderful film critics, film theorists, film historians, writers, that predate Siskel and Ebert. But what they were doing, for the most part, was they were writing for uh, an audience by themselves. They were, they were, it was a solitary pursuit, film criticism. You go to the movie, you watch it, you go home, you write about what you experienced, you personally, um, and and what you're getting is is there, that singular person's viewpoint and perspective. And there were even a few film critics on television before Siskel and Ebert, but they were in that mold. It was one person. It was them mm-hmm. telling you what they saw, what they thought, and what the. It seems so simple now and so basic and fundamental, but it. You know, this was the show that made it basic and fundamental was the idea of having multiple people, multiple viewpoints and having a review instead of it being a monologue. It's now a dialogue and it's two people who have their own separate opinions and now they're exchanging their ideas. They're saying what they thought they're agreeing or they're disagreeing. They're pointing out different elements. They're arguing. They're debating. And, you know, that was a huge novel incredibly original thing mm-hmm. in the mid-1970s when it was introduced. And, you know, uh, as you said, um, you know, Gene passed away very young in the very late 90s. Roger passed away in the early 2010s. He was a little older, but still not an mm-hmm. old man. Um, but even though they are gone, and even though, you know, there isn't like a Siskel and Ebert on television anymore, that idea of, well, film criticism is really enjoyable if you put a couple of people in a room together and have them kind of intellectually duke it out. I mean, that's everywhere today. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, what are we doing right now? Exactly. That's, you know, it's, yeah. it's podcasts, it's YouTube, it's uh, radio shows, it's a million different things. So that, that what they brought to the, to the pursuit uh, and to the, uh, you know, to the idea of film criticism, I mean, absolutely, it was this huge sea change that, you know, it, uh, it never went away. Never did. And what I love about them, too, is their timing, because they came in right at that time when that block, when you had Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, all of them were coming out, and it was really the blockbuster era. And you kind of outlined that in your book, too. Movies were becoming really, really popular, and they went with it. And as a result, they became popular because of that. Would you agree with that? Well, I, yeah, I do agree. They certainly did. Um, they were in the right place mm-hmm. at the right time in a lot of ways. I mean, again, we're talking about... They got their print jobs in the late 1960s, and like we were saying earlier, you know, Hollywood was in such disarray at that time that it was one of the few periods where the people in charge um, actually kind of brought in new new filmmakers with uh, new ideas, like, and they weren't like making, 
you know, what we now would consider independent films. They were brought into the studios to make movies on the back lot or with the money from the studios. You know, that was the period that gave us what we now call the new Hollywood era of these young filmmakers doing really bold, interesting things within the studio system or at least with this, with, with Hollywood studios funding. And so that was when they were uh, first writing about the movies. This is before the show, but it was, um, you know, that was when they were, like, cutting their teeth as film critics. And, uh, you know, one of the very first movies that Roger ever reviewed as the critic um, for the Sun-Times was Bonnie and Clyde, you know, one of the signature movies of that era. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think he had been on the job for only a couple of weeks when he saw that movie. And he would later say, you know, he thought of it as like the first masterpiece of its con- of his tenure as a film critic. So that was the start. And then a few years later, as you said, like when the show starts, 1975, yes, then we get into that period of the um, the blockbuster era. And so you're right, the, the movies are getting bigger, the grosses are getting bitter, bigger, the audiences are getting bigger, and they are there, they have front row balcony seats so to speak, for all of it. And they're kind of, um, they're, they're witnesses, they're documenters, they're curators, in a sense, for all of that stuff, all through the late 90s when Gene Siskel passed away. And, yeah, I do think that the show, which, you know, you can find a lot of it online, um, you know, if you watch any episode really from between, you know, the 1970s when they start to the late 1990s when they stop, the show works now as this wonderful kind of time capsule yes. or, or hundreds of time capsules of uh, American and really a lot of international cinema during this period. You can learn a lot about where the movie industry was and how it evolved over that time by watching Siskel and Ebert because they were there talking about it every single week, week after week, the new movies, the new trends, well, the rise of home video, yeah. the rise of Laserdisc, the rise of... DVD yeah. at the very end of the show. Uh, it kind of coincides with the very end of the show, the very beginning of DVD. So you 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 do get a, a sense of all this. This it was a period of enormous uh, change that they witnessed, and so yes, that is uh, I think a, a, a part of what made them lucky was that they were, you know, they did have this um, incredible relationship or this anti chemistry to draw on. And they were coming along at a period where movies were already the dominant art form in America in ways that they're not really today anymore. Mm-hmm. And it, and they, so they, they had the ability to really have interesting conversations, and they had a lot to talk about. Yeah, for sure. God, there's so many things in this book that I would love to go over with you. There was one more chapter I wanted to really get into, and I hinted at it earlier, but I grew up staying up watching Letterman, much to my parents' chagrin. And my favorite chapter in the store, in the book, and there's so many good chapters in there, Matt, but my favorite is when you go into all their late-night appearances. How did you approach that chapter? Did you talk to producers of the shows? I, I saw you got a few backstage stories going on, but I am so glad you included that, especially the one about Free Willy, which is an interview I still remember watching for the first time to this day. Uh, how did you approach that chapter? Um, yeah, I just, I would, I reached out to a bunch of people who worked on the show. I tried to get, uh, David Letterman to talk to me. He, uh, I think his, his agent, his manager, whoever got back to me, but, uh, 
politely declined. Mm-hmm. But I did speak to a, a bunch of people who, yeah, producers and writers who worked on the shows. And I also, you know, I talked to people who worked on Siskel and Ebert who would often, you know, go with them to those shows and um, were sort of their backstage guests. And so were witnesses to a lot of those stories. And I guess for me, uh, I, I wanted that to be kind of its own chapter because, uh, you know, you mentioned you loved uh, David Letterman. And, you know, I growing up was also a big Letterman fan and also a Conan O'Brien fan. Mm-hmm. And I would I would watch those shows. And I just remember them, you know, I obviously I was a huge fan of Siskel and Ebert, the show. But I also loved when they were on those shows. And I think for a lot of people... That's kind of what they think of uh, when they think of these guys is maybe they think of two thumbs up and maybe they think of them as the guys on The Tonight Show or the guys on Letterman who would show up and uh, yell at each other, fight with each other, you know, give honest assessments of the reviews of uh, uh, of the movies, excuse me, that were made by the people who were had, you know, ju- just appeared on the show before them. And so to me, that seemed like a really important part of their story was um, their appearances together outside of Siskel and Ebert, because uh, to me, they really were very important in expanding their profile, expanding their audience, um, getting them in front of people who weren't just interested in movies and I, I think a lot of people probably discovered the show that way. Mm-hmm. They saw them on, on Letterman or, or Leno or Carson or Conan, and then they decided to start watching the show. Or if they were flipping around on a Saturday night or, you know, God help them, if like me, they, were, they found it at midnight on a Sunday, maybe they decide, oh, yeah, I've seen these guys on, uh, you know, yelling at each other on Carson. I'm going to, I'm going to, let me check this out. And then they, they got hooked that way. So that was, that was why it was there, and yeah, approaching it, like I, like I said, I mean, I uh, scoured YouTube and online for any clips that I could find, every appearance I could find, spoke to as many yeah, producers, backstage people as I could, did a lot of research into articles that, like, Siskel and Ebert wrote about being on those shows, mm-hmm. which they did a, a fair amount, um, or other interviews they gave where they talked about being on those shows. And then just kind of threw it all together. The most interesting part of it was the beginning when you were talking about it. And I had no idea about this. The only reason they were on Letterman was because they were kind of pushed into a corner because they couldn't have the big stars that were out in L.A., right? Like there was some kind of mandate or something that they couldn't have people that were going to be on Carson, something of that, that, of that nature, right? Can you clear that up? Yeah, that was, I think, a detail from I think it's Jason Zinneman's book about Letterman which I had had and, um, you know, I had bought uh, when it came out and I hadn't read it. And then, you know, during the research for this book, when I started to realize, yeah, I should I should make, a, you know, a real I should make a whole chapter about late night. I got around to reading that book, which is really good. I think it's called Letterman. And I think it might have it has a subtitle, but I'm, I'm forgetting exactly what it is. But I believe the author is Jason Zinneman. And that was something he mentioned in his book that he described that. You know, Carson's show, Carson was, you know, obviously he looms large as like this giant of late night television. Um, But I think, you know, like I maybe wasn't even totally aware of just how huge he was and just how much power he wielded, you know, over 
late night on NBC because he was so, so dominant for so long that he really could he had a lot of say about the show that aired after him for example which when it became late night with David Letterman he was able to um say well they can't book the same people that I'm booking because he didn't want you know he didn't want that kind of competition he wanted if you wanted to see the the big stars that he that were you know that you had to watch the tonight show those people weren't going to show up on Letterman, at least initially. You know, over time that changed because Letterman got big, and then the the stars wanted to be on. Uh, they wanted to be on both because uh, it was cool to be on Letterman. Um, but that kind of necessitated finding other guests, not going outside the bounds of what like the typical talk show circuit guests would be. And so that's how Gene and Roger wound up on the show. They were amongst the first guests. I think they were on like a month to the day after the very first episode of Late Night with David Letterman was their first appearance. They were still on PBS at the time. It was towards the end of their run on PBS, right before they went into syndication a few months later. You know, but they were still, relatively speaking, a niche thing. But, you know, that kind of made them perfect for Letterman because they were a little quirky and off the beaten path, and, you know, they, they, they were great guests right from the start, and, you know, because they were willing to be honest, and, you know, they, you know, they shared that with Letterman. Letterman loved when people, you know, said things off the cuff and were honest and cut through the BS of, of late night. Um, and so he was like instantly a fan, and he just brought him back over and over. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I don't know who, I don't have the, uh, the, you know, because Siskel passed away in 1999, there was however many more years of The Late Show with David Letterman and without Siskel and Ebert. But when he was alive, they were, you know, like the most booked guests on the show. They were on multiple times every single year, every Oscar season. Anytime they had a big special to promote, they would be on David Letterman and they would be promoting it and talking about new movies or uh, dissing new movies, dissing each other, telling stories. And, um, you know, there was I, I found somewhere this uh, statement that, you know, someone saying that, uh, you know, the only reason there was two chairs on the set at late night and late show with David <laughs> Letterman was because of Siskel and Ebert, because, you know, unlike Carson, the, the guests didn't stay out there the whole show. They would go back. They would leave. And I asked uh, one of the producers of Letterman, you know, is that true? And they said, you know, it kind of was like we didn't have any other reason for that chair to be out there. They were they were the only two person guests we ever had. So, yeah, it kind of was true. They were the reason uh, they were the reasons for those for the extra chair, because, uh, you know, they were the they were the only ones who used it. <laughs> That's funny. I have so many other things I could go over with you, but I just want to encourage people to pick up this book if anyone's in your family as a film fan it's the perfect christmas gift and even if you're yourself are a film fan and it'll probably do it exactly what it did to me matt which is just scour youtube and i've gone through all their reviews of john carpenter's films and that's the beauty of the internet is you know if you go on youtube you can find a whole bunch of compilations of the reviews of horror films the reviews of science fiction films and all of it's out there and i think the only reason we have film podcasts and things of that nature is because of them and uh your book really really plays up their influence and i want to thank you for writing it and being on the show it's been a pleasure thanks it's uh it was a pleasure talking to you and i'm, I'm glad to hear it, it got you uh watching some old clips that was certainly something i 
I hoped I would think to myself as I was writing it, like, if I'm doing my job right, mm-hmm. people who read it, they're going to go, oh, i got to go find this clip, or i got to go watch some of these reviews. So I'm glad to hear that it did that for you. That's great. And, Thank you. And anything you have coming up, just let me know, man. I would love to talk to you again. You are a fascinating individual. I've been reading your stuff since you were on The Dissolve years ago. and uh, R.I.P. The Dissolve. Yeah, exactly. R.I.P. The Dissolve. But uh, you're going to bigger things, and uh, I want to thank you, sir, for your time. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot. And I would like to once again thank Mr. Matt Singer, who generously gave me more time than we agreed upon before we started speaking. I advise anybody, has, like I said in the interview, who has a film fan in their family, or if you're a film fan yourself, you would do yourself a big favor in order to pick that book up. Because I went through it, like I said in the interview, in like two sittings. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of work. Thank you, Matt, for your time. All right, with all that being said, I felt it appropriate to end the show with a two-person review. I have brought my, well, I guess we could be rivals, not not necessarily as big rivals as Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, are we, Matt? Depends on the topic. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. I dare anyone to go through our football text messages, but other than that, by the way, how big of a Siskel and Ebert, before we get to our review, how big of a Siskel and Ebert fan were you, are you? I've had to do all the all the retroactive stuff. Thankfully, YouTube and all the archives of their written reviews you can find pretty much with with little difficulty. So I'm I'm blessed in that. I'm a fan, but I, I'm not the fountain of knowledge that Matt is certainly. And yeah, I definitely don't have the the living through it perspective that both of you did. I mean, I, I lived through the Roper phase. But I wasn't watching in any way. So that's kind of why I sat out the interview. You know, it's bad that my generation is freaking, you know, we have the stuff that came as a result, namely the, the Roland Emmerich Godzilla movie and the Animaniacs parody. The, the, the episode of The Critic is honestly one of the best things to come out of, outside of the main show that's probably, and all the books and stuff, so... There's a fountain of imitators, but there will—you'll never see anything like that again, especially with how the the film criticism media has shifted entirely to podcasts and a lot of publications that are online now. For sure, you picked up the book. You read it. I picked it up. I haven't finished it in its entirety, just being as busy as I am. But it's on my plan to finish before Christmas comes around. Nice. Nice. Yeah, definitely, definitely worth it. And uh, it was really cool of him to stop by because I, I love diving into that. And I love the fact that, you know, he was a part of it. You know, he was actually on the show. He mentions that in the interview. And, uh, you know, towards the end, he was a part of the, you know, when they were trying to revive it. It's just really, really interesting going through that with him and, you know, him talking to the widows and everything else. And, oh, man, like I said, any fan of those two should pick it up. And it, it even caused me to go back and go through the archives. And YouTube's awesome because they have like, like all the films of John Carpenter reviewed by Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. Like you get, you have everything at your disposal. There are all the horror films from the eighties, all the science fiction films from the eighties, all a lot of the nineties stuff, just great, great stuff. So thank you, Matt, once again. All right, Matt, you, my friend wanted to come on with me. And it's, this is really great timing because we're do, like I said, we're doing a two-person review of a movie that both you and I have seen and would not fit in with any retrospective that we would do, unless we were thinking of doing an Alexander Payne retrospective anytime soon. But 
I don't see that really happening. Yeah, good luck. Good luck um, pitching that to Adam. <laughs> so you and I have both seen The Holdovers in the last week or so, a movie that's out now. And you wanted to do a review of this. Why was it so important to you that we uh, review this? Well, for one thing, it's whenever there's an opportunity to highlight a movie that's out there that I feel is worth seeing, I will always take that opportunity. And in large part because it is a fitting movie for the time that we're in now with the holidays. It's tied into that maybe for another month or so, especially when Christmas rolls around. This will be something that mm-hmm. I think will work better. But I don't know if this will be one of those movies that puts you in a festive mood. It's definitely not that kind of Christmas movie. But it it's something that I wanted to talk about because this has been on my radar ever since I saw the trailer sometime in the spring. Maybe it was the summer. I don't know what I went to go see. Maybe it was Oppenheimer or one of those other big releases. But something about the trailer really intrigued me, even though it was not something that looks entirely new. I mean, structurally, both in the trailer and within the context of the film itself, this is something that is not especially groundbreaking. But from what I was seeing and the talent attached, I knew it would pique my interest. I have to say, the trailers did nothing for me when I saw this was coming out. And I am a fan of Alexander Payne myself. I, I have seen almost all of his work, but this one, when I saw the trailers, I was just like, eh. The trailers had a weird feel to them. And so I was curious about it, but I was like, I was willing to wait for streaming. And Jen's the one who was like, you know what, we should see that. And uh, we've had a pretty difficult couple weeks as far as adulting goes we just like you know what fuck it let's just pick up and let's go get a bucket of popcorn and sit in the movie theater and uh we walked out and we talked a lot about it i gotta say those low expectations were reversed almost automatically when uh this movie was about 10 minutes in so where do you want to start do you want to start with how you felt about it overall or what, what, how do you want to start this? well i kind of want to mention that i'm glad this movie is out there because it touches on a market that I feel like is underlooked, because this is an independent movie, but it's very accessible to a lot of of casual moviegoers, as I'll call it, because this is not one of those independent productions that I feel is going to be shoehorned or overly marketed to the Oscar race. And I think whenever you have movies like that, People see them because it's got that sort of reputation that it's going to be up for a bunch of awards and people check it out almost out of principle. I don't think this is going to have that strong of a campaign in that regard. So I think it's it's worthwhile on that front because I don't feel like this is something that if it was getting that push, I feel like wouldn't be as strongly received as it is. And I'm glad that we're getting stuff that's not, you know, I'm at a point where I am just getting burned out by a lot of what's being churned out. I don't view myself as a cynic. You know, I, I think that there's, there are good blockbusters out there, don't get me wrong, but it's been a tough year, you know, and we've, we've talked about a lot of the big releases that have just underwhelmed me, especially fast and furious comes to mind. We've done a couple of other ones. How do I feel about the new hunger games? We'll talk about that pretty soon, but 
you know, even stuff I was really looking forward to, like I was kind of let down by the new Mission Impossible. We'll talk about that in a couple of years because we are going to redo that series. But after those last couple, I thought it was a big step down. And I, I, I've said that there's a couple really strong blockbusters, but they were front-loaded. And they were part of franchises that have been consistently good, so it wasn't surprising. And don't be surprised if one of them is my number one of the year with a month plus to go. Not going to say what exactly that is. But yeah, absolutely. This is something that I'm glad people are getting out there because it's, it's an independent movie, but it's not, I don't think it's coming from a place of pretension whatsoever, which, which I think does turn a lot of people off to these kind of movies. It does. Another thing about it too, it appeals to people like, like my mom is really anxious to see it. You know, this is stuff that that appeals to people like her, like 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 you said, casual moviegoers, movie go moviegoers who aren't going to see people in costumes fight for two hours or three hours, however it may be. They want to see real people deal with real situations. And one thing that Alexander Payne is really good at, and he amps it up with this one as well, is human situations and human emotions. And we run the gamut in this one, don't we? Yeah, and that's a hallmark of his career is that what draws me to his movies, outside of one, the only one of his movies I don't like is Downsizing. I still haven't seen that one. So when you see it, and I'll preview it this now, it becomes a different movie in the third act, and it's not for the betterment of the overall movie. But his movies are all about people that, whether it's subconscious or on the forefront, they're very troubled people. And oftentimes they're not likable. On some level, it could be their overall perspective on life. It could just be where they're at in their life. But he's always been very good at taking your your ability to empathize, not sympathize. I, I think those are two very different things. And he's actually been very good at dealing with very difficult subject matter without going too far into a what, you, what I would consider conventional Hollywood approaches. I think about Schmidt is a good example because, yes, mm-hmm. he cast Jack Nicholson in that movie, but he stripped him of all of his jackness. And I, I say that lovingly, but it's the kind of role where anyone could have played it, but because it's Jack, it's more impressive because he he has not given a performance like that in a very long time. And I say the same thing about George Clooney and The Descendants. That's yes. one of the only times where I felt George Clooney actually gave a performance instead of just being George Clooney. Same. The inverse here is with Paul Giamatti, where, to get into the movie, this is the kind of role that is tailor-suited for Giamatti as an actor. He's not doing anything unexpected, but I think that actually makes it better because I understand with what Payne did with the script, he wrote this with Giamatti in mind, and you can absolutely see that. Giamatti is absolutely wonderful in this movie. The premise is weird. I, I'll go ahead and say, you know, that the premise is there's a, there's like a week long detention or like a two week detention. Right. I have that right. Yeah. It's basically from the week before Christmas to the start of the new year. Start of the new year. I have never heard of that happening. It's, this is high school, right? Yeah. It's, uh, or is this it's com- clearly a, it's, it's a prep school for the for, prep for rich people. Yeah. Yeah, and they're there because their parents, the ki- the titular holdovers are the kids where their parents, whether by choice or by circumstance, are not coming to pick them up. So they're they're basically stuck. It's not quite detention, but Giamatti's character kind of starts it out as just an extension of the school year. 
Yes. And in the midst of this, we have a guy who I believe it's his first movie, correct? The the kid that plays Angus? Yeah. I don't I think this is his Main debut. Kid. Yeah. His debut. I thought he was pretty good, especially for his first movie. He was not the standout standout for me, however, but I did think he was pretty good. He he's another one. I mean he he has a lot of emotions in this, you know. He has some daddy issues. He has some things that I really don't want to get into on this podcast. I want people to check it out for themselves. But there's stuff that he has to do. I think he's good for the most part, but I don't think he's great. What do you feel? I was very surprised because I, I've i never seen him before. And I've seen this type of character before. This movie is not groundbreaking. And I, and I don't say that as a you know slap against it. But you've seen the rebellious, angsty teenager especially in period pieces, or even modern films, done a million times. But the way that this, all these characters, they're dealing with something. And it's something very human in all three principal characters. We'll talk about the third one momentarily. That you slowly unravel what's what's troubling them. Like, there's something there that is at face value, but then there's a reason why that's revealed in the latter half of the movie. And I think that's why I responded to these characters as much as I did, is that you don't get everything immediately, because that would that would make it too easy for you as a viewer to outright connect with them. The one that stood out to me is the third one that you mentioned, played by a gal by the name of Divine Joy Randolph, who is known for mostly Broadway stuff. She was in Ghost the Musical, and she was in Dolomite Is My Name from a few years ago, the United States versus Billie Holiday. I think of everyone in this movie, and I do think Giamatti will get a nomination for this, but I think she's going to be the one that gets the most attention. What do you think? I think so, but I'll, I'll say my one knock on the movie. It's not her performance, but I, I do think she's easily the least developed of the three. And I'm kind of tired of using the, the, the black maid as a dramatic crutch, especially with the context of the, of the period. And I, and I think the movie kind of, it's the one stain I have on it between that and the Asian kid that's just there to be picked on. I, I think it's a, it's a little too, it's a little too obvious with what it's trying to do. Oh. Like I was getting data vibes from the Goonies. Yeah, so was uh, I. It was, it was not. Like I say, it was insensitive, but her in particular is the one that I think I could have done to see more of her. Because uh, there's a part where she kind of leaves the movie and it focuses on the two of them. It'll sporadically mm-hmm. come back to her. But I, I think there was enough real estate in this two-hour-plus movie to give her a little bit more. I agree with that. Uh, um, she does get a lot, though. I mean, she she has a lot of issues. And some of the stuff that she does, like there's scenes when her and Giamatti are watching TV together. And it's late at night, and she's watching talk shows. And GMI's trying to understand the talk show, and she's just get, gathering up memories of when she used to do that with people in her life, her son. And it's just it's brutal to watch because you see the emotions she's going through as she's watching. And that's what Payne is so good at. He is so good at bringing up the emotions of these people, and you feel the emotions of these people. And like you said, it's not always people that you like. Giamatti is a fucking prick in this movie, but you you like him because of the way he's written. He's got the eye thing going on, which we, we point to a couple times, but 
I think the lunch lady in this is the standout for me. It could be looked at as too easy, but you know what? <laughs> Adam said it a, f- a few podcasts ago when we reviewed something earlier this year. I'm easily manipulated. Actually, no, that's one coming up, <laughs> actually. Uh, I'm easily manipulated, and I felt the emotions because of the way she was playing it and the way it was written, and Giamatti as well. These are three people going through three stages of, of different lives, and Payne uses all of his talents to put these t- three together in a really remarkable, really believable. And if, I, if it's not more apparent already, I really dug this film. I love this film, actually. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you, but to unpack some of the things that you made apparent in your comments, one of the things I did want to mention is that, and Payne does this in all of his movies, there's a point where they have their breaking point. But it doesn't go so far into the Hollywoodization of people in those situations. Because, like, there's a part where it escalates with her. But the next scene, she's back to kind of a baseline. Uh, But even in that scene where she kind of unravels, it doesn't go and escalate to the point where stuff is being thrown or she's, like, cussing somebody out. It happens And that scene is also important because it's the first time where the other two characters learn how to look beyond themselves and focus on someone else. So that, that's, it's a very well placed scene. It's well performed and it serves a purpose, as does the following scene when they're driving to the car because it's right back to them being self-centered. And and Giamatti's character, you learn everything about him in the opening scene where he just wants to be by himself talking shit about other people because he's grading their exams. And I love how when he walks in, you see every single one of the essays or whatever they are, the final exams, they're either all failed or they're just barely above passing. And, you know, the one student that ironically he's stuck with is the one that got the highest grade. Um, and mm-hmm. even then, he couldn't give him an A. Yeah. <laughs> so, And you learn throughout the movie why he is the way he is. You think it's just the the dislike for the wealthy or the entitled, because that's what you get in his scene with the dean when when you find out he's basically being punished because he didn't pass the son of a senator who gives the school all this money. So you think it's it's because of that. But like with the other characters, you learn more about why he is the way he is, and you see a you see a very clear through line that tracks. And it's revealed in a, in a great scene where it's at a liquor store of all places. <laughs> it's it's all pretty close to one take. Walking in the scene's great. And you think they're by themselves until they cut to the... I'm going to give a spoiler. They cut to the the guy at the register. Hands up a bottle and he goes, here you go, killer. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the, fu- the hardest I've laughed in a long time. <laughs> and this is a funny movie in, in a very sly way. Like, this is very, very pointed comes from situations and people having snarky comebacks, but not in a way like... I was thinking of, like, this is such a great opposite of what I hate about Wes Anderson movies, where I think he is way too snarky and way too self-revelatory that it's not funny after a certain point. Like, this comes from the actual emotion of the scenes, not the aesthetics. It's a movie that slowly develops. You know, it, 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 it's, it's a slow burn. But, you know, it reminded me, I think if I were to compare this to any of his other movies, it reminded me more of About Schmidt than anything. 
And I think this is about as revelatory as a, of a performance by Giamatti as Nicholson gave in that movie. I just love the fact that Giamatti, I mean, he's way past, you know, being just horrendous in Amazing Spider-Man 2, which we'll get to eventually. Uh, he's not doing those those big pictures much anymore. And this is somebody, Alexander Payne, who he worked with on Sideways, and he knows that Payne can do him well, and he does. In Payne's filmography, I would pro- I would rate this in my top three favorite of his movies, honestly. What about so you? I'd, I'd have to think, because I'm definitely going to, when this comes out, whether it's streaming or a, or a physical release, I'll definitely be picking this up and watching it again, just to see. Yep. I think there's a lot of details and some foreshadowing that may go unnoticed on the, on the first take. And the emotion of this movie actually will get you because I don't feel like it's overly manipulative. There's something with the kid, I'm not going to say what it is, that tracked, but also really changes your perspective on him entirely. And it doesn't feel like a cheat or a, a, or a writing sleight of, sleight of hand to make you feel like, oh, they just pulled that out of their ass. It really doesn't. Uh, when you think about it, it would make sense why it's not how he presents it. Let's just go with this. I mean, let's go ahead and give our raking on a scale of 1 to 10. What, what do you give So this? I do think this is one of the best movies of the year. I do think it's the kind of movie that I think is accessible to everyone. But I will say that your connection with it is going to depend on whether the situations they're dealing with are something you can relate to. And there's three characters you can draw from, whether it's grief, whether it's separation, whether it's... I can't say a whole lot about the other two, the, the two, Giamatti and the kid, because the trailer sort of tells you everything you need to know about the, the cook. Her son died of Vietnam, so that's not a spoiler. But but when you learn more about the other two, I think it actually plays brilliantly. But it also, as I said, your ability to empathize with that in your own life, I think will go a long way. And there's something that with the kid that really resonates with me, which is why I, I responded to that character as much as I did. Uh, and it's got a great, with a capital G, final scene. Oh, jeez. Yes. Um, and it pulls back to something that is a footnote in one of the earliest scenes in the movie that I didn't think was going to come back. But what it does, it's so satisfying, both when you see it and with how Giamatti's character interacts with that particular item. I'm going to yes. leave it at that. But I'm like, that is that is so brilliant that they brought that back. And it ties it to something that the kid did throughout the movie. It's not an easy conclusion they come to. And, and Payne does that in a lot of his movies. They're not easy endings. They're not Hollywood endings. You know, Sideways ends with maybe they get back together. But you only know because he's attempting it. For all we know, she could shut him out again. Mm-hmm. You know, About Schmidt has the, the tug at your heartstrings ending. But it's from a connection that he doesn't have face-to-face, which kind of makes it more sad that he, spoilers for that movie, doesn't fully settle things with his daughter, but he finds acceptance and and a a place of contentness from the way that movie ends. So I I do think this is a great movie, uh, great performances, fantastic attention to period detail. This movie will make you want to huddle up in a blanket. I was just about ready to say, man, and I told you this in text form. Not since the thing, 
has a movie made me feel so fucking cold. And if it's snowing outside and you watch this thing, it's it's going to be like 10 times more cold. Yeah, this thing this thing does make you want to do that. Gosh. And we didn't yeah, we didn't even mention this takes place in the 70s, like 70 and 71, Yeah, right? so it's very very early yeah. 70s and the the set design, you know, all looks like stuff of that period. Uh, Vietnam is a lingering presence throughout the movie in multiple instances. They go see a movie that, oh yes. uh, thankfully is not. I know it's came out in seventy two, but it's not like they go see The Godfather or something that, like, of course you pick that movie. It's less yeah, obvious. Yeah, certainly less yeah. obvious. It's funny when it needs to be, uh, but it's not afraid to openly confront that these people are fundamentally broken in some way. And in another part, what they're dealing with cannot be fixed with just, like, you know, emotional duct tape. And I appreciate that. So, all in all, this is, speaking of Jack Nicholson, this is about as good as it gets for me, as far as, <laughs> far as you know, what I look for in movies, what I respond to. And I'm at a very strong nine for this. I'm not going to call it a feel-good movie, because it's not. But, no. you know, if you're someone like me who's been burned by a lot of these big movies and wants to go see something much more tailored and actually crafted versus churned out, I think you you owe this movie your time. And I think you'll be rewarded for the two hours you're there. So nine for me. I am a, on a lot of the same planes as you are, my friend. I watched this and me and Jen could not stop talking about it. We still talk about it every day. We, we say a line from it. And you're right. It is really funny when it needs to be, which a lot of pain movies are. You can point to any one of his movies and point to one standout scene that is just will have you in stitches. But at the same time, it's not really about that. And the turning point in this movie, Matt, to me, was when they go to that party. Because that's when all the emotions really come out. And, you know, all of us have been there. All of us have been to parties, whether it's with family or maybe it's with a new lover or maybe it's with a lover who is taking you to meet a relative, whatever. And you've been in that uncomfortable situation where, what do I do? Like, where do I go? Who do I talk to? Should I just cuddle in this corner? And a whole bunch of situations happen at that party, which I'm not going to spoil here, but it just shows all these characters just exactly who they are. I'm lockstep with you, sir. I, I am at a nine as well. Just the performances and the story, everything about it, I just enjoyed so much. Yeah, I'm at a strong nine, so I guess it's safe to say that we give this two thumbs up, right, Matt? Oh, that's, that's fair to say. And I also got to say, if you're a film fan, if you if you're a Hal Ashby fan, you're gonna love this movie. Not just because it's oh, a Cat God. Stevens song, but you know it, it's got a lot. It reminded me of stuff like The Last Detail and Harold and Maude, where there is humor in it that's outright funny, but there's a there's an undercurrent of sadness throughout it that you can find that you get the full life experience with both you know like the two theater masks. I think that's what that's what Payne and certainly Ashby have crafted as far as their movies. So, you know, I can't recommend this highly enough, but I, I don't think it's, and I don't say this me, in a mean way, it's not showy enough to be like a best picture contender in my estimation. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same with you. I, he might get a screenplay nomination. It's, it's going to get a few of those those noted yet not too, like you say, glamorous nominations. But you know what? This is a guy who, I mean, the last movie he made was Downsizing. What was that, 2018? Yeah. 2017? Yeah, and he doesn't make a movie every year. He yeah. takes his time to to do some stuff, and he's been making movies for almost 30 years. Yeah, and 
I mentioned this to you guys. I thought he was going to really take a bunch of steps back, and we would never see a movie from him again. Just Google Sandra O oh and essay on Alexander Payne, and you will see why. But he has risen above that, and he has gone on to do this movie, and I hope people get out and see this because... And will enable him to make more of these movies. You know, and even the beginning of this, Matt, I even pointed to Jen. When the R rating came up at the beginning, you know, that that old 70s crackled screen. It's not in an obvious way, like Grindhouse, for example. You know, it's yeah, it's just... The and only, it's, like, the only movies that do that nowadays are, like, Exploitation or horror movies. We'll pull the mm-hmm. classic title cards, like Universal. Uh, this does Miramax, which it, it took us back to a time when you didn't cringe when you saw the name Miramax. Exactly. Um, yeah, good point. Uh, but yeah, like this movie is, you know, it feels like something that would have been made during the period it's set in. Well, all that being said, sir, I need to get off because guess what? Like you mentioned, we have a Hunger Games review coming up and I gotta see that movie in order to review it. And uh, as we speak, I am finishing up the Killers edit, the Killers of the Flower Moon, which will be up by the end of the week as Matt posted earlier this week. And we have a bunch of other good stuff coming up, including Star Wars prequels and the prequels are gonna pretty much finish out the year, aren't they? Or what are yeah, we, what between, we the, hung, between the Hunger Games and Star Wars prequels? are going to be our Christmas gift to everybody. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, those are great shows. We've already we've already uh, recorded those. And there's one of those where me and Matt get in one of those Siskel and Ebert type fights, actually. So stay tuned for that. And also, we're going to do our normal year-end show where I'm going to take a wild guess and say this is going to end up on both of our top lists. Yeah, it's um, going to be, but it's gonna, you know, because I, I, got, I got five I can think of, but there's also a couple more movies that are I'm excited to see. But I, I have, I have hesitancy about whether or not they'll make my list. There aren't movies that are going to be on a retro, so I feel like I can mention them. Uh, Napoleon's a big one. I, I want to see it. Yeah. But I know that it was a four-hour movie that they cut down to two and a half. They've already mm-hmm. said Apple Apple Plus or Apple TV is going to have the finished. I don't know what you call it, the the uncut <laughs> director's cut. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, because all of Ridley Scott's director's cuts are basically better than the theatrical cuts. So, you know, that that I'm I'm excited to go see. I hope it's good. There's a bunch of other ones. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, Taka Watiti's movie, those inspirational sports movies, which I love. I want to see what he does with that. Apparently, he's been trying to make that for about six years or so. And you know what? I'm also a big fan of Sofia Coppola, and she has a new one in theaters right now called Priscilla, about Priscilla Presley, which I really want to see as well. I can already think of five as well, Matt, but I, I think there's going to be one that's going to show up on my list that we're going to be covering next year. So yeah. <laughs> it's uh, like I'm really yeah. at a standstill oh, so right now. We are going to do Michael Mann's Ferrari movie when that comes out. That, yes. That, depending on when it gets a wide release, will either be the end of this year or early next year. Because it's me, I really want to see the new Chicken Run movie. Because that, that, that original movie is great. I mean, Ardman are masters of what they do. But it's one of those sequels that's been 20 plus years. How good can it really be? Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I just love the first one. I, I gotta say, I'm intrigued by this new Willy Wonka movie. Really? Only because it's the directors of the Paddington movie. And I, sco- mm. I scoffed when those came out. And I was pleasantly surprised. My only question is, I don't know if Tim- Timothy Chalamet is the right pick. Especially if he's going to be singing. This is a musical. Yeah. And I sat... Another music. I look at the trailer, I'm like, I don't see him as Gene Wilder. And I 
don't think this should be tied in whatsoever to the Johnny Depp movie. Not that I think it will be. But I also don't know how that movie's going to do. We have The Color Purple yep. coming Which out. Which is also a musical. Another, Yeah, another musical. And you know what? I didn't even realize this till we went to the theater, but we saw a poster, and me and Jen have been going through The Killing on Hulu, and she's been going through that for the very first time. And there's a movie starring Joel Kinnaman from The Killing, directed by John Woo, coming out. It's a action Christmas movie called Silent Night, which, boy, they haven't used that before, oh, have God. they? Well, well <laughs> every year it seems like we get one good like off-kilter Christmas movie, because last year yes. there was the one with uh, David Harbour. Oh, it's gonna! It's one of our Christmas traditions. We're gonna be watching it like the day after Thanksgiving every year. Yeah, so hopefully, uh, and we have this. Hopefully, that fills out because you know I love Krampus, but that's more of like an outright you know condemnation of, of Christmas. But but yeah, I, what, what 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 does Krampus have to do with Silent Night? The, like the, the like new ho- new holiday classics that are not like oh gotcha not gotcha. like you know hallmark christmas movies um, yeah i don't sure. want to see it because of the director and the fandom associated but i'm going to give Zack snyder's new movie a chance because it's original sci-fi but last time you're out of did, your mind. last time you did that was fucking sucker punch <laughs> <laughs> you are out of your mind there is no way i'm going to be going to looks, a theater like, to see that looks like the sequel to jupiter ascending that was never made <laughs> um, and, I, and I don't, I don't say that lovingly, but Netflix, the fact that they, they of all people, put up the two hundred million has me interested. But it's like the only directors that they, they've, you know, because Scorsese, The Irishman was through them. Uh, they're getting a lot of big name directors to, you know, come over to their side. But I think it's more of the streaming wars being uh, anything else. And the last one I really want to see is the the Von Erich movie that's coming out. Yeah, which you and I have been thinking about covering on our own. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm shocked that, that that would even get out. You know what's funny is they did a whole movie on the Von Erichs, yet Bischoff was trying to get a Hogan movie out there for Netflix, and that fucking <laughs> took, a shit, took a shit earlier this year. They're not doing guess, that anymore. I guess Chris Hemsworth is like, I don't want to do it. Yeah, he backed out of it. Um, so. Which is funny because I think he's actually a good pick. I agree. I thought he was the perfect pick to play him. Um, I know Gennari just as a, as a fan of the as a fan of the hoaxer myself, I think that's a really good pick. So we'll see. I mean, there's definitely some some promising stuff coming out, but I feel like we're in the we're in the point where you don't see any of the big Christmas releases doing gangbusters. Like as far as you got Aquaman, I don't think that's going to do well. Yeah, that has box office poison written on it. Although I said that about the last one, and it made a billion dollars. It was also released around Christmas. So, like, you you can't predict this Mm -hmm. stuff anymore. I mean, look at the the movies that have done the best this year. You know, if you look at the... Barbie is the number one movie in there. Domestically, I mean, Mario is going to make money. Spider-Man made money. Guardians of the Galaxy. But Oppenheimer's in that top five. And then the rest are all usual suspects. Ant-Man, Little Mermaid, John Wick. The, the John Wick movies have a following. And who knows? We Which talk, we're covering. We're talking about those very soon because there is a spinoff coming out yes. next year. And apparently they're making a fifth movie. Yeah, I'm saving my thoughts because I have things to say. Oh, man, I cannot wait to talk about that fourth one. I'll just say that. Well, we might talk about it next month if it's still... Uh... Oh, we're definitely going to be talking about it next month. I'm talking about the long form. Oh, yeah. There, there, will be, there is uh, a retrospective plan for next year. Um, yep, and I still have yet to watch and, the uh, the show. I haven't watched it yet. Oh, take a deep dive on that. It's only three episodes, sir. Oh, thank God. So, 
Yeah, it's not even not even like 10, 11. It's, it's literally three. So yeah, so much coming out. And for people out there, please go check out The Holdovers, as we mentioned. Both of us gave it nines. Both of us gave it two thumbs up in honor of the people we've been talking about this entire podcast. And please go check out Matt's book. Matt, I would like to thank you, sir, for joining me on this review and a look at Siskel and Ebert. I appreciate you as always. So in a couple of days, Killers of the Flower Moon will be posted. Please check that out. And until next week, the balcony is closed. Thank you, Matt.